0: Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Well, hello there. This is Dee and welcome to episode 32 of the Benzo Free Podcast. You know... Before I dive in too deep into our content today, I just want to say a quick thank you. Yesterday, I had the pleasure of having a coffee um, south of Denver with Dr. Stephen Wright and Dr. Christy Huff. This was a wonderful time just to spend talking about benzos, about outreach, about research, about what's new. in in the two hours we sat there, we covered more information than I can even comprehend or stick into my brain. So I'm trying to remember what we talked about, but it was a, it was a wonderful time. And I want to thank both of them for taking the time, um, for the three of us to get together and just chat and catch up. Um, I also want to say that for those of you who have struggled so much with physicians or with doctors or the trust of doctors, And I know I've said many times that there are good ones out there to not, you know, not give up. Dr. Huff and Dr. Wright are the perfect examples of that. They have dedicated their time to helping us, to helping those of us who are struggling with this and help raise awareness and help educate physicians and help educate patients and help let people know about the dangers of these drugs. And I just want to thank them because they're the perfect examples for us to use when we say there are good doctors out there. And more and more of them are learning about these, and more are going to get better. So please, if you're looking for a physician to help you, don't give up. There are good ones out there. And I just have to say a big thank you to um, one of our listeners and a good friend of mine, John State. He actually coordinated this whole thing and put it together, but unfortunately, he had a conflict and couldn't join us. So, John. Thank you for hooking us up and for getting us together for this coffee. Um, it is really appreciated. Thank you to all of you who have commented on the picture on Bic's Facebook page. Your your warm wishes and your your, your messages were just heartwarming. And thanks to everybody. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'll move on. You know, I'm kind of celebrating something today. I, I normally record the podcast episodes on Mondays and edit them on Tuesdays, but today I'm actually recording it Tuesday morning and I'll cram in the editing this afternoon. Um, and this isn't because I'm behind again, which is usually the reason when I record on a Tuesday morning, this time it's actually intentional. You see, I, I wanted to record this episode on this date. Today is August 20th, 2019. Now, you might be asking why that's important. Well, it's probably not to you, unless, of course, it's your birthday, which in that case, happy birthday to you. Um, I hope you're celebrating. You know, I would have sent a card, but I forgot. I am so sorry. (laughs) Anyway, August 20th is an important day for me. You see, five years ago today, I took my last dose of clonazepam or clonopin, and I became benzo-free. Yay. I am now officially five years benzo free. And I knew no matter what I did, I was gonna get a little emotional here. <laughs> Just let it happen, Dee. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay to feel this. Ah, damn it, it's still embarrassing though. I I hope I have the courage to leave this in, but I might be editing it out, so I'm I'm sorry. Hang on a second. Okay, anyway, today I am five years benzo-free, and it feels good. It really does. You know, that the tears I got right now feel good. It feels good to say that I've made this five years. This is a major achievement, and it is for every one of you who have become benzo-free. You know, as I mentioned in last week's episode, when you get to this stage, celebrate it. This is something to be celebrated, and I'm celebrating it with you. There is no place on this earth I would rather be right now than with you. You're you're my friends. And you know what this took. You know what I went through. I know what you're going through. And I want to celebrate this with you. And you know, today isn't just my anniversary of being benzo-free. It's also the anniversary of publishing my book. Yes, I I purposely published my book on my fourth year anniversary of being benzo-free. I felt it was a good way to celebrate that goal. And, and it is again. Uh, you know, for those of you who are benzo-free or soon to become benzo-free or or even just took your first taper step. Celebrate this. There is a new life on the horizon, and it's pretty damn cool. I survived my experience with benzos, and I became benzo-free, and I wrote a book on it, and I host a podcast on it, and you know what? I'm doing okay. I'm just really happy to have gotten here, and it feels really good on this side. And for those of you who are, you know, in the middle of it, on your way, just starting out, you get through this. It's hard at times, but you get through this. And to be able to say, I am five years benzo free, to say you're one year, to say you're one month, to say you've tapered down 10% of your drug, celebrate that, feel good about that accomplishment. This is something you did and it wasn't easy to do. You need to be grateful. You need to, you need to take pride in that accomplishment. You've come far. No matter where you are in this whole journey, you have already come far. Just listening to the podcast, just finding information on the web, you have come far. Take pride in that. Celebrate that. Celebrate your curiosity, your willingness, your need, your desire to feel better, to get better. You know, speaking of the book, um, I, I just wanted to thank also one of our listeners um, in particular. A couple of weeks ago, I asked a favor on the podcast and that was for anyone who had read my book to consider leaving a review on Amazon. And I'm happy to say that this morning I saw a new review on Amazon. These aren't easy to get. And I It really means a lot to me when somebody actually takes the time, goes out there, and says what they think of the book, good or bad, it doesn't matter, just is willing to give feedback. I appreciate that. And it honestly helps support everything we do here at Benzo Free. So thank you to that person for doing that. I really appreciate it. Today's format will follow our normal routine for the most part. We have our intro, our mailbag, and our feature and we'll close out with our moment of peace. But unfortunately, we'll be missing our Benzo story. <laughs> Why, you may ask? Because I'm out of stories to share. If you, if you want to send in your Benzo story, now is the perfect time. So I'll have one to share next week. If you did submit your story and haven't heard it on the podcast, please drop me a line. It may have been lost in that email mix-up I've had or... Just got lost in my own internal organization, and if for that, I apologize. I try and keep track of everything, but things do get sometimes misplaced. So please, if you're thinking about submitting your story, now's a great time. And you can do that via the feedback instructions, which I'll cover in a few minutes. And as for our feature today, it's insomnia in benzo withdrawal. Today, we are going to focus on a big one, sleeplessness. This is one most of us have dealt with. You know, we're going to touch on nightmares, too, since those often come back during this time. So please, stay tuned. I think it's going to be a real good feature. And before we move on, we need feedback. Questions, comments, stories, suggestions, corrections, additions, or why rubbing a balloon against your head makes your hair stand on end? Yeah, I I know it's static electricity, but I still still think it's pretty cool and I still don't understand it. <laughs> anyway, I need feedback. This is your podcast, and the more content I can share from you, the more Benzo Free becomes the community it was designed to be. So please tell us what you think. Visit our feedback form at benzofree.org/feedback or email us at podcast at benzofree.org. Or, as I often forget, you can comment directly on the podcast blog post itself for others to see. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org subscribe. And please remember that the Benzofree podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. If you're listening to this podcast on one of our providers, please leave feedback on that carrier. This helps new listeners find us. Let's move on to our mailbag. Today, I have two questions and one comment. The first question is from Mary Ann. Mary Ann writes, I just want to take a moment to say I am so, so happy I found this site. I'm weaning off 20 years of clonopin. I was shocked as I started researching withdrawal. I will write my story, but I'm just beginning, and I'm already angry at the wrong advice I have been given and the way I am being ignored. For now, I do have a question. Can I have withdrawal symptoms during tapering? I'm down to a quarter milligram of clonopin and did it slowly in spite of being told to stop after three weeks of being at 0.5 and stay on Valium. I'm hoping some of what I experience is healing withdrawal. And I'm dreading more intense anxiety, dreams, fear of leaving the house, etc. as I continue my very slow taper. Thank you. FYI, I listened to at least five of your podcasts in two days and already do not feel so alone. I can't thank you enough for being so forthright and just doing such a needed service. Thank you so much, Marianne. Well, I'm I'm glad you found the podcast helpful. That's why we're here. Thank you so much for your, your question, Marianne, and for your comments. Yes, of course you can have symptoms during taper, as you do during all stages of withdrawal and like you said they may continue and they may escalate at times as you get further down you're doing so well to get down to where you are um, on the clonopin, and if you want to stop for a while that is totally fine don't feel you have to push yourself too quickly just remember that there will be symptoms they will come and go but you can work through them and you're gonna be fine you know Two of my favorite quotes about this are from Professor Ashton, and these helped me a lot during withdrawal. The the first one, she said, Many withdrawal symptoms are simply due to fear of withdrawal or even fear of that fear. People who have bad experiences have usually been withdrawn too quickly, often by doctors, and without any explanation of the symptoms. I love that whole fear of the fear thing, because that was so me. Being afraid of what's to come and what I'm going through just makes everything escalated. Professor Ashton also said the following. Above all, stop worrying. Worry, fear, and anxiety increases all withdrawal symptoms many of these symptoms are actually due to anxiety and not signs of brain or nervous system damage people who fear withdrawal have more intense symptoms than those who just take it as it comes and think positively and confidently about recovery you know when i was at my wits end and scared to death of what was happening or worse yet what was to come I often return to her words, and they helped calm me. Fear makes our symptoms worse. Period. Unfortunately, fear is part of withdrawal, and it's often intense. But that being said, spending our energies on trying to manage that fear helps everything. In my experience working with each of you over this past year of of the website and the podcast, I am so often reminded of these words from Professor Ashton. She is dead on accurate with this. Those who I've seen do the best and handle things the best are those who have found ways to manage their anxiety and their fear. So, back to your question, yes, the odds are you will have symptoms during your taper, and they may increase at times. Nobody really knows when or how. They may also increase after you take your last dose. They may also subside. Each person is different. But the degree of your symptoms can be heavily influenced by your level of fear about them. So work on tools to manage the fear. That's, that's where I would put my energy. Please, send in your story when you are ready to share, Marianne. I'd love to hear it, and I'd love to share it with our listeners. And thanks so much for your question. Take care and taper slowly. You're going to be fine. This next one is from Holly in South Dakota. Holly asks the following, I'm enjoying listening to your podcasts. If I had only seen these months ago when I started on this hellacious journey. My story is probably like all others. I was prescribed Ativan for health-related anxiety. After taking it daily for two years, I started to develop agoraphobia. I'm 10 months off now and still can't be in public. Well, I can and do, but it's extremely uncomfortable. I was an RN working full-time and now not able to be places too long. I'm not anxious per se, but going out, it's what I call a complete sensory overload. Instantly when I'm in a store, the lights hit my brain and I become irritable, overwhelmed, brain buzzing feeling. I'm so scared this is permanent. I want my old life back. Have you or anyone you know had this symptom for for this long? I have had many others, over 50 to be exact. Many are much better or gone. That's why I'm thinking I'm left with this sensory overload, awful brain feeling all the time. I would love to share my story in detail later. Well, thanks, Holly. I I would love to hear your story, so please send it in when you're ready to share. Your question is common, and it's a good one to address on this podcast. It all ties in with how long will this last, and every one of us want to know that in Benza Withdrawal. We've talked about this many times here, and I'm sure we'll talk about it many more. I I wish I could tell you a time frame, but I can't. As I've said a hundred times, everyone is different. Still, it does seem like the physical symptoms do tend to heal quicker than the psychological ones. I'm sure there's got to be a medical explanation for this, but I'm not about to try and guess here. I often say on this podcast that this situation is temporary and it is. But if you're asking me when you will be 100% again, when you will be your old self again, I can't answer that. Perhaps a few months, perhaps a few years, perhaps never. Now, before anyone freaks out, what I'm saying here is that many of us never return to our old selves, nor do we really want to or need to. Our old selves are the ones who took these drugs in the first place, most often to handle problems in our lives like anxiety or insomnia. Anyone who has gone through severe benzo withdrawal will tell you this is a life-altering experience. It changes us. Some of those changes are for the better and some are not. But we do change during this experience, and thus, we rarely return to the same person we were before. I still have symptoms, but they are mostly mild and so much better than they were. I work around any limitations they may create. But I've also gained a lot through this experience, and I treasure those changes too. Almost everyone who I've spoken with who had come out the other side of benzo withdrawal has told me you do heal. And I have to agree with that. Perhaps some of the healing is the easing of the symptoms and many of them completely disappear. But part of that healing is also a change in our mindset. And that includes acceptance of any minor limitations which may persist and embracing any new traits which make life so much better. And our last one is a comment from Joanna. She said this in reference to our two-part interview with Dr. Stephen Wright, which we had in episodes 21 and 22. Joanna writes, Just wanted to add a thought regarding sleep issues and something that was mentioned a few weeks ago by the doctor you had interviewed. While at the end of my taper last year, I had taken a six-week course on CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, for sleep. This was very beneficial and a game-changer for me. I realized not everyone will be able to find a course like this or be able to afford a psychologist to teach them this technique, but I did notice that Kobo has an audiobook that teaches exactly this. I had so many bad habits regarding sleep that doing the strategies and work that was recommended after about a month, I started to sleep much better. I still do this practice and will continue to do this the rest of my life. Enjoy your podcast so much. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Well, thank you, Joanna. I I love this comment. First off, it's so nice to hear people write in about successes they've had with various treatments. CBT is one of the most proven methods of therapy with numerous studies backing its efficacy and many showing it's as effective as medication, if not more so, in some trials. I'm so glad this worked for you, and thanks for sharing it with us. It's a perfect reminder, especially since it is our feature topic today on insomnia. Take care, and please keep in touch, Joanna. Thank you. And that closes out our mailbag for today. Now, on to our feature. Today's feature topic is insomnia in benzo withdrawal. This is part 11 of our 14-part series on the symptoms of benzo withdrawal. In case you missed out on some of the earlier episodes of this series, let me recap them for just a moment. We have covered anxiety symptoms in episode 9, abdominal and gastrointestinal symptoms in episode 11, behavioral symptoms in 13, symptoms of the eyes, ears, nose, and mouth in 16 cognitive symptoms in Episode 17, head and neck in 20, excitability in 23, and symptoms of the heart and lungs in 24. And then in Episode 29, we covered muscular symptoms, and that brings us to today. Today, we're going to talk about sleeping symptoms. That only leaves three more episodes in this series, nerve sensations, social problems, and immune and endocrine symptoms. I can't believe we're already on the 11th episode in this series. I I think we've done okay to make it this far. Today's topic is a big one. We're covering insomnia. It's a huge struggle in the benzo community. And we're also going to spend some time on other nighttime disturbances like nightmares. So let's get started. Sleeping problems are some of the most common complaints during withdrawal. Sleep helps us heal, but we often can't sleep well during withdrawal. This makes our symptoms worse, which then makes it harder to sleep. It's estimated that between 30 and 40 million Americans have trouble sleeping each night. So, if you have trouble sleeping, you're in good company. It is also very common in people suffering from mental illness. A 1989 epidemiological study published in JAMA suggested that 40% of respondents with insomnia and 46.5% of respondents with hypersomnia suffer with concurrent mental illness. In fact, according to a 2016 article titled, Why Are Benzodiazepines and Z-Drugs Still Prescribed Indefinitely for Insomnia?, the author stated the following. The link between sleep disorders and major depressive disorder is so significant that some neuropsychiatrists have speculated that depression may be primarily a sleep disorder. At minimum, depression involves dysregulated circadian rhythm and sleep homeostasis. Benzos are most frequently prescribed for two conditions anxiety. And insomnia. So it it makes sense that two of the most common symptoms of withdrawal are anxiety and insomnia. The drugs that were helping you manage these conditions, if even just for a little while, are no longer working as well. And they are now being removed from your body. But the truth is, as far as sleep goes, benzos aren't really an effective alternative. First off, Benzos shouldn't be taken longer than two to four weeks or dependence might set in, as we all know quite well. Second, they are only effective for a short time. If used continuously, tolerance often develops and the effects diminish. And third, the sleep generated by these drugs is not really a restful type of sleep. Benzos inhibit both REM, rapid eye movement sleep, and SWS, slow-wave sleep. These are the two most critical stages of sleep needed for your health. Thus, you are not getting the rest your body needs while you're taking these drugs. You know, let's back up again and look at a study about how effective benzos are in treating insomnia. In a 2019 single-center cross-sectional cohort study published in the Journal of Pharmacy Practice, Melatonin was actually found to be as effective as Zolpidem, which is a Z-drug, for treating hospital-related insomnia and with far less side effects. And other studies have shown similar results with some identifying benzos' benefits for insomnia not any better than a placebo. Lack of sleep has plenty of downstream consequences. Cognitive function and memory have been shown repeatedly to be affected by lack of sleep. It it has also been identified as an increased risk factor for heart disease and other illnesses and conditions. Workplace accidents are another area of concern. According to a 2012 study in JAMA Psychiatry, insomnia was associated with 7.2% of all workplace accidents, and 23.7% of the costs of accidents. The average cost of insomnia-related accidents was $32,062, compared with $21,914 for other types of accidents. The authors of the study stated, Considerable epidemiological research implicates insomnia in impaired workplace functioning, including absence due to sickness, Injuries, and disability. Although such results are sufficiently strong and consistent to rank insomnia among the most costly of all health problems from a workplace human capital perspective, employers have yet to invest widely in workplace insomnia screening and treatment programs. Let's take a look at nightmares before we get too far into insomnia. During withdrawal, many patients experience very vivid dreams and nightmares. This is often a sign of recovery. The dream process was subdued during benzo use and now is starting to return to its normal functioning. The nightmares usually subside in a couple of months once the body adjusts to normal REM sleep. Ashton said the following about the return of REM and SWS sleep and withdrawal. As a result, dreams become more vivid Nightmares may occur and cause frequent awakenings during the night. This is a normal reaction to benzodiazepine withdrawal and, though unpleasant, it is a sign that recovery is beginning to take place. When the deficit of REMs is made up, usually after about four to six weeks, the nightmares become less frequently and gradually fade away. For years while I was on clonazepam, my wife would share her dreams with me in the morning. I always felt left out of that conversation. I almost never remembered dreams, to the point of wondering if I dreamed at all. After withdrawal, though, things kind of (laughs) changed. I now realize that clonazepam suppressed my dreaming for over 12 years. Now I dream. I even remember my dreams from time to time and get a chance to share them with my wife. I, I no longer feel left out. Nightmares can be scary, even terrifying, but they are a normal part of the average human's experience. Realize that the return of nightmares is normal and expected. It may take a bit of getting used to them, but when occasional and not chronic, they're nothing to be worried about. According to an article on Sleep Advisor titled, How to Kill a Nightmare?, The author lists a few tips for dealing with nightmares. Number one, white noise. White noise can bring pleasant memories to people. Ocean breeze, rain, nature sounds, crickets. Anything that evokes calm can help. Number two, make sense of your dreams. If you can self-analyze and identify what's behind a nightmare, it can go a long way to helping demystify it and thus make it less frightening. And number three, the old standard, nothing scary before bedtime. I I think we've all heard this once or twice growing up. Watching scary movies before bed causes nightmares. It sounds pretty basic, but it's amazing how many of us still do it. If you do read a scary book or watch something scary before bed, try and change your mindset before you fall asleep and, and think about something more positive, something calm or soothing for a while. It's important to remember that the return of nightmares is normal and try and view it as a part of your healing process. Now let's move on to insomnia. You know, I struggled with insomnia and still do. I I hate not sleeping. In fact, insomnia is often the first symptom I get when I sense a wave coming on. It's the first place I notice that I'm moving into a wave but it sucks. Lying in bed thinking, which leads to obsessing, which leads to anxiety, which leads to increased withdrawal symptoms, which leads to, you guessed it, insomnia. It's another one of those vicious cycles I like to talk about so much. I now average six to seven hours of sleep a night, and that's amazing. I can't believe I've gotten back to that. For a long time, I was averaging three to four, and then for a while, five to six. I often had sleepless nights, but they are very rare now and that's a great thing. And unfortunately, worrying about sleep may be worse than not sleeping. Individuals who think of themselves as insomniacs or with insomnia identity regardless of actual sleep status are at greater risk for self-stigma, depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety, hypertension, and fatigue. Identifying yourself as someone with sleep problems can actually cause more sleep problems and other mental health problems. If you can't sleep, it's easy to obsess about it, but that only makes it worse. Try and accept it for what it is and learn tools to help you sleep better. According to a 2017 article in the Daily Telegraph, the best solution to insomnia is to forget about it. In the article, Dr. W. Chris Winter said the following, The average patient with insomnia sleeps at least a few hours a night. They may not sleep well, but they do sleep. Using phrases like, I can't sleep, creates feelings of anxiety and helplessness. And once that happens, it can become very difficult to penetrate the panic people build up about sleep. It's something called insomnia acceptance. It's about accepting what is happening as it is and not worrying about it or trying hard to change it. This helps reduce stress and reduce anxiety. Winter adds in this article, When you pull fear out of the process and adopt the idea of skipping a few hours sleep as not a huge problem, it changes your perspective. If you can also embrace the idea that simply resting, even if you're not sleeping, also makes you feel good in the morning, the fear that insomnia is somehow going to hurt you also fades away. The most popular short-term medications for insomnia are Z-drugs and benzodiazepines, and I can't say I'd recommend those for obvious reasons. I hope, <laughs> I hope they're obvious on this podcast. Other medications might help, but they can also have their own side effects and issues. You know, some people have had success with the hormone melatonin, but it also has potential side effects including possible withdrawal complications, so it needs to be used with caution. I tried Advil PM for a few months in the middle of my acute withdrawal, which carries the same adihistamine as Benadryl. I I took this to sleep every night for several months. It it wasn't the best solution, but I was desperate at the time. You know, I knew I couldn't keep it up, and eventually, I did have to slowly wean myself off of it because it made my ekesesia even worse, and I was honestly concerned about long-term side effects. Ashen says the following on sedatives during withdrawal. Most other hypnotics and sedatives act in a similar way to benzodiazepines, including barbiturates, chloral derivatives, Noctec, ethchlorovinyl, placidol, zopaclone, zimovane, imovane, zopadem, ambien, Xaloplan, Sonata, and, incidentally, alcohol. None of these drugs should be used as alternative sleeping pills. All can cause a similar type of dependence, and some are more toxic than benzodiazepines. Ashton also mentions that tricyclic antidepressants and some antihistamines can help manage sleep during withdrawal, as I did, but need to be used with caution. No drug is without side effects. You know, eventually I realized that the only reasonable alternative for dealing with my insomnia were the more natural methods. So, I did more research and found a whole list of options. While none of them cured my insomnia during withdrawal, I tried a few and they helped me get through. Sleep hygiene is a term used to mean creating the right environment for sleep. This includes the bedroom, the bed, your schedule, your mindset, and many other factors. Let's let's take a look at some of the more common tips for getting a good night's sleep. Number one, avoid eating before bed. Large meals at or near bedtime can keep you awake. Try to give yourself at least a couple of hours between your last meal and and the time you go to bed. Number two, be active. Having a mentally and physically active day tires out your body and mind, and being tired helps you sleep. Three, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. CBT has been found successful for many with insomnia by helping the patient control or eliminate negative thoughts. CBT is found in most studies to be as effective, if not more so, than most medications. Number four, cool off. You know, cooling off your body temperature triggers a good night's sleep. Open a window if you can, sleep with less blankets, but actually the cooling off of your body does trigger sleep. So if you can regulate the temperature in your room, do so. It might help. Number five, don't worry. Try not to worry about sleep. Remember, you are healing and you will have nights when you don't sleep or you get less sleep. Getting anxious about not sleeping only makes the problem worse. Be kind to yourself and know that your body will eventually adjust. Number six, get up. Lying in bed and ruminating is not very productive. That's when my brain drifts to those dark places, as I'm sure yours do too sometimes. If you just can't sleep, then get up. Get up and do something for one hour. Then return and try again. Try to break the cycle. Sometimes that will reset your internal clock and clear your mind. Number seven, keep to a routine. We all have a sleep cycle, and when it gets disrupted, it can cause problems. Finding a good routine, a steady routine that you can maintain, is important to developing that internal rhythm to help you sleep. Number eight, limit caffeine, alcohol, and nicotine. You know, most medical professionals recommend that you avoid these drugs, especially close to bedtime. And... I, of course, want to pipe in here and say, especially during benzo withdrawal. So it's just good to severely limit or even avoid all of these drugs during withdrawal for a lot of reasons. Number nine, a dark, quiet room. Having a good sleep environment is important. And for many people, the darkness of the room is critical. Some people are disturbed by the most minor of distractions such as the light from a clock or the moon from the window or soft noise from the furnace. During withdrawal, our sensitivities can be heightened, so this becomes even more extreme. And perhaps removing any distraction from the room can help you stay in that sleep state. Number 10, screen time. You know, the concern about screen time's influence on our mental health is growing. And it's not looking good, and this is especially true before bed. Watching TV using your phone or tablet before bed hinders your ability to sleep. The blue light emitted from these electronic devices can disrupt the body's circadian rhythm and suppresses the body's natural release of melatonin, which is essential for helping you sleep. I try to avoid screen time before bed, but you know what? Before bed isn't the only problem here. Binge-watching TV also has effects on our sleep cycle. According to a 2017 study published in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine, young adults who binge-watch television shows are more likely to have fatigue, insomnia, and generally poor quality of sleep. In the study, more than 80% of young adults identified themselves as a binge-watcher. And those identified as binge-watchers had a 98% higher likelihood of having poor sleep quality compared with those who were not identified as being binge watchers. And that's just two areas where digital media appears to have a negative influence. More and more studies are raising concern about the consequences of increased screen time on our general health. Number 11, acupuncture. Acupuncture has been found to increase melatonin and help people sleep in certain studies. It has also been shown to be helpful with anxiety. I, in fact, tried this during my withdrawal. I didn't notice a direct effect. It doesn't mean I didn't have one, but others I have spoken with have found it quite helpful. Like all treatments, it often falls to trial and error. If you want to give it a shot, it's something to consider. Number 12, Epsom Salt Baths. During withdrawal, muscle pain can influence our ability to sleep, often waking us at various times of the night, and then our minds kick in, and then the night is over, and we might as well get up. I found that occasionally Epsom salt baths, about an hour before bed, helped me relax, and it calmed my aching muscles, allowing for a more peaceful night's sleep. Number 13, weighted blankets. Some studies have shown that weighted blankets actually increase sleep time and even the quality of sleep. Finding the right weight for each individual is important, and just like anything else, there are possible complications which can arise from their use, so they need to be used with caution. But still, it might be something that helps you get better sleep. And number 14, I just wanted to throw in for fun it's called Somnox. And if you don't want a blanket, there is another alternative a robot. Somnox <laughs> is a bean shaped padded robot. It's been designed to fight insomnia. Somnox's Kickstarter campaign raised over $150,000 in just 10 days, and it's now available. The pillow has sensors to tell if you are sleeping well or not, it adjusts its sleeping rhythm to match yours. It can even play music or read you a story as you drift off to sleep or light up and sing a lullaby if you have a nightmare. Unfortunately, it's not cheap, and it's still relatively new with few quality reviews. As of the release of this episode, it was available on Amazon for about $600. So if you want to check that out, you might have to fork over some cash. Anyway... That was just a sample of some tips of possible sleeping, you know, habits. Again, I'm not a medical professional, and this is not advice. It's some things I came across that maybe people might find helpful. This is just for informational purposes. But by developing some good sleep habits and by finding maybe one or two techniques or treatments that help you along the way, you might just find a way to get the shut-eye you so desperately need during withdrawal. Just remember, try not to worry about it. Insomnia is normal. A lot of people deal with it, and it often comes and goes. The more you focus on it, the more you might be creating it. I wish you all a good night's sleep. And that wraps up our future. Before we get to our moment of peace, please stay tuned for about 30 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal or professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering on any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit, you know, before you have to return to the chaos of the real world. The way this works is that I'll give you a brief introduction, perhaps a suggestion of something to focus on. Then I'll play a soft bell, which will indicate the start of the one minute. This will be followed by another soft bell, which will indicate the end of the one minute. And that will be the end of the episode. Feel free to continue to meditate if you choose. If not, continue on with your day. And please remember that you should only do this if you are in a safe place, where you can close your eyes and relax, and let the world pass by without you for a minute. Today we're going to do another basic meditation. It's the So-Hum meditation. This is one of the most simple mantras to focus on. You just say to yourself, So on your in-breath and hum on the out-breath. That's it. So let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. Take a deep breath in, hold it for a second, and let it out slowly. Let's do that again. Take a deep breath in, hold it for a second, and let it out slowly along with all the stress of the day. one more time, take a deep breath in, hold it for a second, then let the breath out slowly relaxing our entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally, and repeat your mantra so on your in breath, and hum on the out-breath. And if your mind wanders, just gently bring it back to your breath again. No judgment at all. Continue to do this for one minute. next episode is episode 33 and it will be released next Wednesday. Thank you again for joining me today and please let me know how we did. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.